I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Common. In this week for Pia Chattopadhyay, welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you on Sunday, February 4th on CBC Radio. very active week on the world stage from the Middle East to Ukraine. First up, our global affairs panel unpacks where these conflicts stand and how primed Canada is to navigate them. After that, pandemic lockdown certainly turned much of our world upside down. And as podcaster John Ronson will tell us, they also breathe new life into the culture wars dividing us today. A divisive new set of youth gender policies was unveiled by Alberta Premier Danielle Smith this past week. We'll help you make sense of them and the political context within which they arrive. Later on, what recovery looks like a year after the devastating earthquake that killed more than 50,000 in Turkey and Syria. Plus, NPR's Aisha Harris on the complicated dance of reviewing black art and artists as a black critic. It all starts right now on The Sunday Magazine. Events in the Middle East took a dangerous new turn when American bombers struck at Iranian-linked militia targets in Iraq and Syria. That was in retribution for a deadly drone strike on an American base in Jordan. Yesterday, Britain and the United States, with support from Canada, among others, carried out airstrikes on Houthi facilities in Yemen. On the diplomatic front, hopes of a possible breakthrough on a ceasefire and the catastrophic war being fought inside Gaza by Israeli forces. Meanwhile, Europe is increasingly jittery about Russia's next moves beyond and in its war on Ukraine. Meanwhile, in Canada, Ottawa is figuring out how to respond to an increasingly tense and dangerous world. Join me to talk about all of this, and there is a lot, is Arif Lalani, Senior Advisor at Strategy Corp. It's a geopolitical advisory practice. He is also the former Canadian Ambassador to Jordan, the UAE, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And Vesmo Mamani, a Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. There's an awful lot to go through, just reading that introduction. There's a million things going on in the world. Besma, I will start with you. Um, And in the Middle East, we look at this American response. What is going to happen now after those uh, U.S. warplanes struck these targets in Iraq and Syria, particularly the Pentagon saying it's not going to be the last? 
Well, I mean, I think we could expect more, uh, but certainly I think this is putting particularly the Iraqi government in, in quite a predicament, to be frank. I think there's a, a real challenge here for, for the Iraqis, and this is um, not going well uh, in Iraq. You know, they um, have hosted the Americans there as well um, in their military basis. They worked very well with the Americans and certainly before that the Canadians too um, in, in the fight against ISIS. But, uh, you know, the Iraqis themselves are getting tired of um, having these strikes on their territory. I mean, I think in the interest of Iraqis generally, they would like to see both the Iranians and the Americans out of their country uh, and to regain their sovereignty. Uh, but yet they are seen as, or, or they feel as though they're a proxy ground for you know, greater battles between Iran and, and the Americans on things that are outside their territory. So it's really, I think, a, a tough spot for the Iraqis. I mean, on the Syrian front, um, this is, I think, part of a broader effort. Um, we're going to see the Americans eventually pull out of Syria. I think that's uh, eventually going to happen. It's certainly in the works already. Um, but ultimately, I think, uh, in trying to, to hit uh, Iran and, and Syria, um, it's really just a way to avoid direct confrontation with the Iranians, which uh, we know uh, the Americans won't do. But it's ultimately, I think, the price of civilians on the ground that are paying the price in, in Iraq and Syria, and more importantly, just complicating our regional politics further. No direct conflicts with the Iranians, and yet there are these proxy-like conflicts that are going on. So, Arif, if I go over to Yemen, um, these Iranian-backed Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, We've seen the Americans strike at them. Um, Iran provides weapons and training to the Houthis, but are they the ones directing their attacks on the ships, and, and, and to what end? Well, look, I, I doubt that there's such a level of operational control from Tehran. I mean, I, I think there's financial and other support. But I think the challenge for the Americans here is the fact that they've had to now uh, attack and launch cruise missiles twice. This is the second time they're doing it. And so it doesn't actually suggest that it's going to be effective. And so if you're a shipping company, uh, I, I don't think this is going to provide you assurance. You're going to wait and see what happens. And and so I don't think this is a strategy that's going to be effective. Either the Americans will have to continue to fire at targets um, or, or um, uh, allow shipping to continue to be endangered. It's It's just not a good position. What, what other option would they have? Well, I think there's a big, there's a more macro um, uh, initiative here that's re required, right? These things are all connected. Uh, what is happening with Hezbollah, with Hamas, uh, with Israel's response to, to Hamas's terrorist attack, uh, and what's happening in, in, in the Red Sea. So I think they need to look at, um, you know, people talk about the war escalating. I think another way to look at it is, is is how can we expand the prospect for peace? Because you need a regional um, solution. So I think the Americans really need to think about a regional solution. And second, they need a partner. You're seeing the Americans trying to run all of this on their own. And frankly, uh, it's been less than successful over the last four months. You, you bring up the broader war, and Besma, maybe I can bring you in on this, because the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, has seen um, uh, through the, the course of this conflict 
uh, a significant number of Palestinians killed, upwards of 27,000, according to reports from the health ministry in Gaza. We also see that Canada's foreign minister now confirming that this country is going to follow suit what the Americans have done, issuing an executive order that targets Israeli settlers linked to some of the violence that's been happening in the West Bank. How effective, Besma, do you think those kinds of measures would be at curbing the violence? Not very much. Um, Yet again, it's more symbolic and rhetorical. Uh, It's trying to look busy and effective when, frankly, it's not going to do anything. I mean, at the core of this entire conflict from strikes in Iraq and Syria to what's happening in Yemen is to address the Israeli-Palestinian issue. I mean, that's where, if you really want to put efforts in there, is actually make two promises of of a two-state solution real. Enough rhetoric, enough, I think, dancing around and, and, if you will, chasing other um, other geopolitical hotspots uh, as though they're isolated from the overall context is just futile. This is a challenge, an opportunity for us all to finally bring the two-state solution to realization. All political and diplomatic efforts should be put towards that. I think then we'll see an entire different Middle East. Arif, do you do you see any indication that that is happening or that even a, a ceasefire amidst all the talk of, of hopefully getting one might actually happen? Look, uh, uh, I think it's very hard to do this if you just focus on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. So what I would suggest is to focus on the on the region. You know, when you're trying to do these negotiations, in my experience, you need to, to broaden the pie and introduce more issues so you can have a negotiation. And so what I mean by that is um, there is a, a peace process that was in play between Israel and Saudi Arabia. There was a detente between Iran uh, and Saudi Arabia. And there is an issue of, of the Palestinians and Israel. And I think that they're connected. And I think it's very interesting that despite all of the conflict in the last four months, a number of countries in the region have actually tried to preserve the prospect for peace. I note that the Iranian president actually visited Saudi Arabia in November. Which is uh, remarkable. Two, it is remarkable. Uh, and, uh, and the two countries met together in Beijing in December. Um, and I think there's a broader lesson here, which is, you know, the art of kind of superpower diplomacy is to engage your rival to pursue your interests. And what's missing here is the Biden administration figuring out how to engage China and and have them share the burden of trying to manage this conflict. I I mean, I I hear what you're saying, that China has such a a, a powerful role and has such trade and political alliances with so many in that region. And yet for the Americans, a, a dominant force is still Israel, and it's still led by Benjamin Netanyahu, who has said that this war doesn't end until Hamas is destroyed. And yet some would argue um, he would want to continue the war uh, forever because it's in his political interest to do so, that he could be a political dead man walking um, the moment this war ends. Besma, what do you make of those arguments? Oh, I agree completely. Uh, Netanyahu knows that at the the moment this war ends, um, he may be facing a trial and great investigations about the intelligence failures of October 7th and for all the other shenanigans he's been up to even previously before that. This man has many, many corruption cases against him, hence why he wanted to really stack the court and and, and plant a great deal of judicial uh, 
um, overhaul. I think uh, there's nothing um, Netanyahu wants than more than his own political survival. Uh, Israelis don't trust him anymore either. Uh, and I think the strategy that he's put in place, his so-called objective, is unachievable. I mean, even Israeli military now admitting it. They can't defeat Hamas. You can't defeat an ideology born out of the realities of occupation. So something needs to change. And I think we, as uh, the Western world and the Americans in particular, as the greatest supplier of, of Israeli weapons and arms and money, need to put their efforts where it's going to be useful. And the use, utility here is in actually getting a two-state solution. We keep talking about it, but frankly, no no effort is done to put all of the muscle behind it, i.e. actually tell the Israelis that actually you won't get the money that has been promised to you in foreign aid unless you actually are serious about negotiations. That's never been done. Arif, I would go back to you then because you were talking about the macro, the bigger picture, uh, all of the the region and and the big players in the world, whether it's the United States or China. Is the situation in Israel just too entangled to allow for anything other than a worsening situation in the region? Well, I think you have to hold out a vision for for a, a bigger peace. Uh, to allow people to step back and, and see that, you know, they could have other interests at play. And and I, if I just go back a little bit, uh, some of your listeners might be old enough, uh, like me, to remember that after the first uh, Iraq uh, war, uh, when Bush Sr. successfully led a coalition uh, to defeat Iraq, after that, they realized that they needed to solve the broader issue and they created the Madrid peace process. But they enlisted the Soviet Union as a co-sponsor, even though they were bitter rivals. And I think now we need to think about what is a regional uh, process in which China also shares the burden. They are a large trading partner with Israel. They are one of the largest trading partners with the UAE and with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and right now they're kind of getting a free ride because the Americans are doing all the heavy lifting uh, and, and China continues to trade. You're listening to The Sunday Magazine. I'm David Common, in for Piacetta Padai, and we're speaking with Arif Lalani and Besmamani about the recent events in a world in conflict. Uh, Besma, if I shift away from the Middle East for a moment, uh, Arif has said to us everything is interconnected, but and, and Ukraine is part of that connection, as is Russia. Um, we've heard the, the head of the British Army, uh, General Sir Patrick Sanders, recently saying that Britain should train and equip a citizen army to prepare the country for a potential land war. Such is the worry about Ukraine expanding. Besma, is that likely given the stalemate that seems to have taken hold in, in between uh, Ukraine and Russia? Somewhat. I mean, I don't think the UK is at is a threat, but certainly I think the Baltic countries and some of the neighboring countries to Ukraine and Russia uh, do need to be worried um, in some way, at least need to be prepared. I mean, would Russia want to expand this war? Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, there are, I think, some countries like perhaps even Moldova I'd be worried about because of um, a pocket there that is already uh, pretty much Russian-backed and, and operated. But uh, I think for the rest of the region, I think they're more worried about 
future-proofing themselves away from um, the potential that the Americans will become disengaged. I mean, that's a bigger risk. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Trump is likely to come back or Trumpism um, if, if all, you know, if November turns out to be that way, uh, Europe will be very different and Europe will be alone. It won't be able to depend on the Americans like they have for so long. Uh, You know, Trump has made his, um, you know, his distaste for NATO very clear. And I think he's also uh, alluded to the fact that he would absolutely uh, stop support of Ukraine uh, on day one of his coming into office. So there are, you know, there are many, many reasons for, I think, Europe to be uh, focused on being more self-reliant, concerned about their own defense, um, worry about Russia expanding beyond Ukraine. I I doubt that, to be honest. I don't think... um, I don't think Putin um, has that appetite right now, or perhaps um, even the capacity, a, or the capacity. Mm-hmm. But there, you know, let's there, there's. I don't think I would. I wouldn't um, not prepare for it. I think every country has to be prepared for that, particularly on the front line uh, between uh, you know Eastern Europe and, and Russia. But um, yes, uh, Russia will, or Putin himself uh, uh, will be celebrating. Uh, I think when Trump comes to power, and that's the bigger issue. Arif, I wonder if I can go to you where, with where Canada stands in all of this. Um, you've represented Canada at the UN Security Council. Um, we see uh, Canada's European allies among the latest to urge Canada to spend more on its military, to, to do more for NATO than it does. Um, those allies concerned uh, about the alliance broadly, about the American commitment to the alliance in a potential Trump return. Where does Canada sit in all of this? Well, today Canada sits a little bit isolated and and frankly uh, not meeting its commitments. So if I was still advising the government, uh, I would say you you better be prepared and you better commit to 2% uh, uh, on defense spending for NATO. Uh, Even if Trump does not win, if he's the nominee, Europeans are going to expect that. So I think that's... Uh, step one. Step two. But we've never done that. We've never done it. We've made the commitment uh, over and over and over, over and over and over. And and the current prime minister quite startlingly said, you know, we'll never meet it. Uh, I think that's going to have to change. Uh, you can't live in a world where the UK and Germany and, and all of your uh, allies are increasing their spending uh, and you have only rhetoric. Uh, it, it's It's not sustainable. You can't be relevant. Second, any U.S. administration always asks, what does Canada bring to the table? And so Canada, I think, needs to move very quickly to become much more relevant with some major players. It has to uh, figure out how it's going to manage its relationship with India, how it's going to engage China, and frankly, uh, also how it's going to strengthen its relationship with European partners. All American administrations, and I was posted to, to Washington when we did the transition to the Bush uh, junior administration, you know, they're polite to us, but we shouldn't mistake politeness with influence. Uh, what they look at is, what are we going to bring to the table? Mm-hmm. Can I ask you uh, e- even a more general question, uh, briefly to both of you? 
the notion of, is the world, in fact, a more dangerous place? You talk about India, with whom we have certainly political frictions, China, with whom we have multiple frictions on, on different levels, the Americans who have political uncertainty coming our way. Um, in, this can, in this country, the possibility of an election anytime between now and you know, less than two years from now. Is this a more dangerous world? Besma, I'll start with you and then go to Arif. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's both from the bottom up and top down. Top down, great power rivalry. Um, certainly both China and, and the United States, this rivalry is uh, fragmenting the world in, in new alliances, forced alliances. And then you have Russia, a wannabe great power, but declining power nevertheless and able to make a lot of damage in Europe. And then bottom up, you have populist nationalist and alt-right movements throughout the entire world, Israel included. We talked about, you know, Netanyahu. Um, similarly, the alt-right movement there of settlers is devastating to Israeli politics. And I think you can see uh, Trumpism, if you will, throughout the world. Uh, there are some bright spots here and there, Poland uh, and others that have turned uh, more liberal. Right. But the reality is it's getting darker and darker for sure. Arif. Well, I actually think uh, from the perspective of Euro-Atlantic countries, which is Canada, it definitely seems like a more dangerous world. But there's a whole other world out there in, in Asia uh, and in Eurasia where the world actually, for them, is, is more of a world of opportunity in India, in Indonesia, in Malaysia. So I would say what I see is it's an unmanaged global system, right? It's very unpredictable. We're feeling less secure, uh, but the biggest economic powers in the world, which are now in 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 uh, you know Asia, uh, have a very different perspective. So we're really seeing a world where the global powers, particularly the U.S. and China, uh, are not managing the system very well. Do they not know how? Well, I think they do, and I think the examples are there, uh, you know, and I keep going back to when we had a Cold War with the Soviet Union, we still managed it. And, and you mentioned the UN. You know, here's the bargain uh, implicit in the United Nations Security Council and the idea that, that certain powers have vetoes. They have vetoes because their issues are never going to come to the council. They're supposed to manage the big issues of the world without having to revert to the Security Council. That's not happening. Um, you know, countries like Canada and Germany and France are not going to solve global problems. It's going to have to be uh, some leadership by the United States and China first. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what I'm, I'm watching for in, in, in the coming year. We'll unfortunately need to leave it there, although much more uh, that we could go on about. Arif Besma, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. That is Besma Mamani, a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo, and Arif Lalani, a senior advisor at Strategy Corp. It's a geopolitical advisory practice. He's also the former Canadian ambassador to countries including uh, Jordan, the UAE, Iraq, and Afghanistan. This is the Sunday Magazine. I'm David Common. John Ronson has made a career out of questioning conventional wisdom through books, reporting, and podcasts. The journalist has surveyed everything from people who've been publicly shamed to the American military's exploration of paranormal tools, even the porn industry. His latest work continues that trend in a podcast from the BBC called Things Fell Apart. 
which delves into the culture wars creating division in society today. For its latest season, John focuses on some of the fringe narratives that emerged during the COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns. And John Ronson joins me today to chat all about it. John, welcome to the Sunday Magazine. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. Well, we're very glad to have you. And I I use the words culture wars there. We hear so much about it. But what does it mean to you? I think it's pretty much all of the conflicts that engulf us today, all of the things that we yell about uh, or yell at each other about on social media that don't involve economics. So every conflict that isn't about money, I think, is the definition of, of a culture war. That's a pretty big definition. Yeah. And in fact, the fact that it doesn't involve economics, I think, is interesting in itself, because quite often I think that, that the rich are stoking the culture wars with their algorithms and so on, while uh, in a kind of bread and circuses way, you know, a kind of opium of the people way, while they get richer, we're yelling at each other about whatever culture war is, is you know, important to us. Yeah. If inequality is exacerbating it, then money is part of culture war, as it turns out. Right. Uh, yeah, I think we're I think we're dupes. Uh, I think I think I think they love it. I think they love it when we yell at each other about everything from, you know, and it's been happening since the 70s. There's the, the satanic panic. Uh, now it's COVID conspiracies. It's Antifa um, and so on. But yeah, and, and they just get richer and richer. The COVID-19 pandemic, of course, turned the world upside down in so many ways. And you have used that period as a vehicle to explore the culture wars. Tell me about that. Right. Well, in season one of Things Fell Apart, I was tracing the origin stories of of the culture wars from the 60s through to lockdown. Uh, So in season two, I decided to look at lockdown. And it turns out kind of extraordinarily that after six weeks of compliance in May 2020, People just went crazy. We we grew suspicious of our neighbours and our institutions. We were like coiled springs sitting at home with the internet for company. And almost every culture war that consumes us today all blew up within about 20 days of each other in May 2020. So that's from COVID conspiracies. The murder of George Floyd happened uh, in that period. And, and Antifa and, a, and a, a, a Ron DeSantis. And all of these things happened in a short period of time. So, in season, so season one is 50 years of the culture wars and season two is 20 days of it. Yeah, that's quite something. And of course, in those 50 years, in those years leading up to it, that so much came to influence our response to COVID, our responses to each other during COVID. You explore that in um, this second season. And I want to play a clip from the episode that's called We're Coming For You, Honey. I was put in the suicide watch wing. They do everything they can to do their little body cavity searches and humiliate you. For exposing their deadly secrets, the minions of Big Pharma waged war on Dr. Michaelvitz, destroying her good name, career, and personal life. Now, as the fate of nations hang in the balance, Dr. Michaelvitz is naming names of those behind the plague of corruption that places all human life in danger. This is filmmaker Mickey Willis interviewing Judy for his documentary, Plandemic, The Hidden Agenda Behind COVID-19, 
I imagine these people stand to make hundreds of billions of dollars that own the vaccines. And they'll kill millions, as they already have with their vaccines. I want to get you to explain the fascinating backstory of Judy Mikovits. It's it's an incredible story and so pertinent to the whole reason why I wanted to make things fell apart to begin with. Uh, Judy Mikovits was a cancer researcher uh, for years, gave it all up for love, moved to California, began volunteering at her local yacht club. Uh, and to cut a long story short, she hooked up with a very wealthy couple called the Whittemores, whose daughter was very sick with chronic fatigue syndrome. And together, they set up an institute to try and find the cause and treatment for chronic fatigue syndrome. And after a couple of years, Judy announced uh, that she'd done it. She discovered the cause of it. And it was a little-known mouse virus called XMRV. And Science magazine published her findings, which is like hitting the jackpot in the, in the science world. And it was a sensation. This is the mid-2000s. It was a sensation. And, and all these other scientists then tried to replicate Judy's findings and couldn't. Um, and so Judy doubled down uh, and then tripled down. Her institute were asking us to hand over her, her research materials so they could double-check the findings. And Judy was said, no, I'm not going to do it. And now she's in conflict with her employers. And, and she goes on the run and she's hiding out on a boat. And now the police are after her as a fugitive from justice. And, uh, and as somebody who stole her own notebook books from the, or she got her colleagues stole her notebooks from the laboratory and science is on the phone saying you've got to retract your findings. Uh, and this was very important because Judy's findings were that millions of people were walking around with this mouse virus asymptomatically giving each other chronic fatigue syndrome. Anyway, the whole thing was a, was an utter mess. Judy ended up going to jail uh, for five days and admitted finally that that her findings were flawed, disappeared. And when she disappeared, I think there's certain personality types that if they're wounded, they can't recover, they can't get over it. So they just lash out and lash out and lash out. And you see this happening on social media all the time with culture war thought leaders um, who are perhaps narcissistically inclined and they can't get over the wound. And so instead they just continually lash out. And Judy reappears six weeks into lockdown with this documentary, Plandemic, which feels very much to me like her way of getting revenge on the medical community. Um, so Judy's desire for revenge is what set off uh, pretty much the entire COVID hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy, what you're living through isn't what you think it is. It's like tens of millions of people were beguiled by this documentary made by a woman who was wounded and wanted to lash out. It's fascinating just talking to you about the, the wanting to lash out because Judy may be one example of that, but uh, you have a pres presidential race going on in the United States right now, and we certainly see a lot of that from, from various candidates and, and their proxies. But these are ideas that at one time would have been just dismissed. Oh, that's fringe, crazy, forget about it. 2024, not anymore. I know, it's crazy. I first noticed it 25 years ago or more. Uh, I snuck into this secret club in Northern California with a then unknown conspiracy theorist called Alex Jones. Cut to 
2016 and suddenly Donald Trump's appearing on Alex Jones's show. It's like all of these nascent things uh, that, that I covered in, in the 90s and the early 2000s have proliferated and now dominate society. And as you see, there's people like Judy Mikovits all over the place now who are who are lashing out at the, at the algorithms, uh, luring people to this lashing out and making people more and more like extreme caricatures of themselves, defining themselves as being in opposition to other people. And these culture wars explode and, and people die. And, and there are implications. I mean, I just think about everything around the COVID vaccine itself. I mean, we look at the uptake of the COVID vaccine now, and it's certainly in Canada, um, it has gone from very high rates to not as high rates. I sit there and I wonder, has have those conspiracy theories moved their way through the population and just created even greater mistrust of uh, the pharmaceutical industry, of medicine, of all things, and that people who might not themselves um, think that they are conspiratorial are now seeing things differently. Sure. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this who feel that way about vaccines will say you can't lay the blame on us and our paranoia. Uh, Conspiracy theories tend to explode when our elites behave in conspiratorial ways. So, so sure, you know, elites need to make sure that, that they're behaving as rationally as possible, too. Yeah, absolutely. If if you don't want people to think in a conspiratorial way, they there can't be conspiracies. And and there are. They may not always be about COVID or about vaccines, but there are vac- there are conspiracies. Sure, groups meet in, meet in secret. In my book, them, I got you know I snuck into Bohemian Grove with Alex Jones and got chased away by the Bilderberg Group through the through port through the streets of Portugal. And and uh, yeah, these these self selecting secretive groups really do exist. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I'm always a little, you know, reluctant to lay all the blame on the on the paranoid fringes. And in fact, one of the reasons why I like telling these stories is because I think it's quite often, you know, fun and interesting to stand with them as they glare back at us, because sometimes we get to learn more about our world that way. Absolutely. Um, to the podcast, who's another person you interviewed who really stuck with you? Um, well, well, the most moving episode for me of the two seasons was season one of Things Fell Apart. So every story in Things Fell Apart is an origin story of a culture war, like a tiny little moment that then, uh, you know, a pebble thrown in the pond that caused mayhem, changed society. But there's one episode in season one called A Miracle, which is the opposite of that. It's about how two warring factions came together. And it was a, a man called Steve Peters, who was a pastor with full-blown AIDS, who went on the Tabby Faye Baker uh, afternoon chat show, Tabby's House Party. Uh, she wanted somebody on who had AIDS because she was feeling that her televangelist peer group was too homophobic. And the most extraordinary conversation happened between the two of them, where, where Steve just did the most wonderful job. I called the show a miracle, partly because he was so miraculously good on that show show and also because he didn't die um he he became the oldest surviving person with full-blown aids in the world and i interviewed him in, in the show and it was just so moving it makes me think that people are sick of culture wars because the number of 
calls and emails I had after that episode went out when people said they were they had to pull over the car because they were crying so hard in the car makes me think that people are actually yearning for connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's other stories in season two of Things Fell Apart. There's an extraordinary story about this family who escaped lockdown when the lockdown rules were uh, lessened in their state, uh, Washington state. They were Twilight fans. So they started to, they decided to go on a Twilight camping trip to Forks, Washington. Um, and as soon as they pull into this tiny forest town in Forks, people start following them with guns and are like flipping them the finger on the side of the road and, you know, questioning them, what are you doing in our town? And this family, we're just, just trying to go camping and this poor family, they get barricaded into this campground um, in the middle of the forests, uh, chainsaws, shotguns, um, loads of people following them, like circling them, almost like one of those old westerns and it turned out that the reason why was because word had got around town uh, because of our unbelievably polarized media that this family was Antifa and were out to destroy the town Uh, so that's one of the episodes of season two I then try and figure out well what happened to make this town convinced that this family was Antifa that is a wild story You're listening to The Sunday Magazine. I'm David Common, sitting in for Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm speaking with journalist John Ronson. His latest podcast for the BBC is called Things Fell Apart, and it explores the culture wars as they manifested during the pandemic. Uh, John, we were talking about this a bit earlier, but you seem to approach the people you profile in this podcast with a lot of empathy, um, and I think that is broadly true of your past work. Why do you take that tact when you speak with someone like, you know, for instance, Alex Jones uh, or one of the men arrested for plotting to kidnap and kill the governor of Michigan? Sure. And I'd like to say that I hope that, you know, the empathy and the curiosity and so on that I display doesn't make me a dupe. Like when I'm back home, I try and get the morality right by the time the story is, is finished. But I also feel that when you approach somebody with with instant judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only is it kind of hierarchical, and I'm always a little bit suspicious of people like us in the mainstream media who go into a situation as the representatives of righteous society. It's, you know, that kind of hierarchical journalism always feels a little performative to me. Absolutely. But mainly, yeah, but mainly it's because I think if you take judgment out of your head, there's room for curiosity. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm happy for the compliment that, that I'm empathetic, but I think what I, I'm more than that is is just curious. I, I, I want to meet people where they are. I want to try and see the world from their eyes. I guess that is probably what empathy is. Um, but yeah, and I just think it makes for better storytelling as, as, as long, and, and, you know, better twists and turns in it, and it pulls the rug from underneath the listeners or the readers sometimes. And, and as I say, you know, there is a downside to that, which is you can give people who do bad things an easy ride. But I really hope that if you're just aware of that pitfall, you can avoid it. Yeah, I'm with you on this. I, you know, um, in this job, I, I talk to people and some people don't like it when we talk to those people. But I, I always think conversation is best, that the idea of letting the drawbridge down is better than keeping it up. 
I think so. And and also, there's some kind of evidence, actually, that deplatforming, you know, this this um, platforming versus deplatforming argument's been raging for a while now. And I, I keep up with Alex Jones, because I was pretty much the first person ever to interview him. And, and it came out in the hearings about how he was... His, he and his listeners were hounding the parents of children killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting. It came out that after he was deplatformed, um, he made more money. After he was off of YouTube and and so on, he got richer. And you and you see, and, and Naomi Klein writes about this a, a little in in Doppelganger too. You know, when we expel somebody from the community, when we deplatform someone, they don't dissolve. Mm. You know, they they go to rumble and make even more money and create a world of even worse, more nefarious echo chambers. And conspiracy theories, of course, are just so pervasive. Um, many of us have seen it in our family, in our friends, or our Facebook feeds. People that we maybe thought wouldn't go down that path, down that path. And I wonder, because you have spent so much of your recent career looking at them, do you ever worry that you'll be seduced by them? Uh, <laughs> I quite I quite like being seduced by things when I'm out in the field. I, I, I often feel that um, uh, nonfiction writers should have all the ambition of novelists. And if I'm a character in one of my own books, I should go through a life-changing experience and see the world in a completely different way. But then one hopes that when you're back at home with all the material, you can then pull yourself out of the rabbit hole. But a lot of people these days seem unable to pull themselves out of rabbit holes. And it's it's for me, it's the biggest mystery of our time. Like, why are so many people, you know, smart people like Judy Mikovits, who we talked about earlier, you know, succumbing? And for me, that's such a fascinating area. And I think some of it's to do with addiction. I think a lot of it's to do with narcissism, that if you're wounded, you just lash out. And also, if you're narcissistically inclined, the truth doesn't really matter as much to you as it does to other people. Uh, and I think the algorithms have a lot to do with it. I think the tech the tech giants are, well, I say they're loving all of this. I mean, things aren't going that well on Twitter these days. So I think it's a combination of, of a lot of those things. Yeah, you talk about truth, and uh, I, I find it an imperfect term, but a lot of people talk about us being in the, the post-truth era. Um, there's all sorts of reasons not to like that term, but uh, what, what do you mean when you use that kind of term? Well, I mean, it, it worries me a lot. I, I think factual truth is incredibly important, and if people take less stock in it than they ought to, I, th I think society is in deep, deep trouble. I, if, I don't want to be too, like, broad, but I think on the right, I think the right do these big, baroque, almost kind of mythological lies like Pizzagate and QAnon and so on. You know, these huge balls-out lies. I think on the left, sometimes on the ideological left, it's a different kind of untruth. It's a, it's more subtle. It's more to do with confirmation bias. Like if we want a certain type of person to be a hero of our story, then we filter out the stuff um, that doesn't correspond with this you know, our, our sort of magical thinking about ideology and so on. So I think the problem is really on both ends of the spectrum um, when, when it comes to, you know, different ways of telling untruths. I think activist journalism has done a, an awful lot of good, but I think it comes at a, at a cost. I think the cost is 
is we sometimes flatten inconvenient truths. What is the the cost now on societies like Canada, the US, the UK? I mean, right now things look desperate and, and uh, right, you know, people are having to learn to use their brains in completely different ways, um, you know, especially with AI and so on. We have to learn to not trust anything anymore. And thus far, it seems to be working kind of okay on, let's say, Twitter, that if, if some huge lie spreads, then there's a community note and people are saying, no, 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 that's AI, that's that's nonsense. But how long that lasts, I don't know. I mean, AI is getting so incredibly good. I saw the other day on my Instagram feed, Taylor Swift tried to sell some kind of non-stick frying pan. And it was so real. I, I, it took me a while to realise, well, of course, that's not Taylor Swift. That's that's AI. Um, so it does. It, yeah, it, I think it's a it's it's genuinely concerning. We have to hold on to truth. I end season two of Things Fell Apart with a kind of plea of that we should hold on to truth like driftwood in the ocean, because if not, we'll, we'll drown. Well, and humanity and our societies have, through the eras, been tested and come out the other side, and, and sometimes at enormous cost. If we are in such a moment now, in this post-truth era, will we come out of it? I mean, one certainly hopes so, yeah. I, I gave a talk to a bunch of disinformation people at a conference in Belgium last year, and I was quite optimistic, saying, you know, we're quite good at adapting, you know, these... these as, as long as we can trust our disinformation people for being completely unbiased and completely unaligned. Obviously, on the right, they think that people, you know, groups like Snopes are biased towards the left. And I think that's, that would, if that was true, it would be a disaster. Factual truth is factual truth, wherever you are ideologically. So, you know, right now, I think we do seem to be handling it in a way that you said, you know, we're, we're adapting. But, uh, you know, if... if if we succumb, if we fall, we're in deep, deep trouble. Well, we have to say one thing that's positive now. <laughs> Where <laughs> is hope? Well, I spoke earlier about my episode of Things Fell Apart, a miracle, which is about two warring factions coming together and how moving that was to people and how much people felt like they wanted it. So I think deep down, you know, when we're outside the horrific echo chamber of Twitter and so on, I think people do want connection. And and I live in a little village in upstate New York where it's very mixed, you know, 50% Trump, 50% Biden. And, you know, there isn't fighting on the streets. We all go to the bar and in town and everybody drinks and everybody's nice to each other. If a dog escapes we're all running up the road together trying to rescue the dog so i'm hoping that if we don't succumb to these you know, these culture warrior leaders these men's rights gurus these tech utopians you know if we remember our own humanity then yeah you know, I, I i think peace is what people want deep down john ronson thank you thank you david john ronson is the host of the bbc podcast things fell apart The climate is changing, so are we. 
I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. For many, it is a hot-button topic right across the country. But this week in Alberta, the Premier, Danielle Smith, hit the button hard. Speaking to Albertans on social media, she outlined a suite of new policies for transgender youth. From medical restrictions on hormone treatment and surgeries, to rules about pronouns and parental consent, and transgender athletes' participation in sport. The proposed policies are being described as the most aggressive to date in Canada, and they have the country talking. Jason Markusoff is a reporter and producer with CBC Calgary, and he's with us now. Jason, good morning. Good morning. Okay, we have seen other provinces take uh, their own stab at this, New Brunswick and Saskatchewan. How is Alberta different? As you kind of said at the top, it just it's the it's the width and breadth and um, rigidness rigidity of some of these. Um, what Saskatchewan and New Brunswick did was require parental consent for when youth um, under sixteen want to change their gender pronouns uh, or names in school. Um, that's in there uh, for this program, but also some rules affecting older uh, teens in school. There's also opt-in requirements for whenever a teacher discusses or covers topics of gender identity, human sexuality, or sexual orientation. Uh, Parents have to opt in. Otherwise, uh, their kids can't uh, participate. Then there's the health care issues uh, for trans youth, which uh, no province has uh, touched. This will be Canadians first. Um, Daniel Smith has announced a reassign a ban on gender reassignment surgery on tops or bottom parts uh, until 18. It's a bit of moot on the uh, a bit of signaling on the top on the bottom surgery because there is no uh, gender genital um, reassignment surgery yeah, uh, anywhere in the country, anywhere in, anywhere in the country. But uh, but that will affect a few, maybe up to a few dozen people uh, who every year uh, minors who uh, will get um, torso uh, reconstruction surgery for gender reassignment, um, and then hormone blockers and puberty. Sorry, hormone treatment and puberty blockers will be banned for anybody under sixteen, um, and that's a big change that has a lot of uh, medical experts concerned. And then there's the realm of sports, as you say. Um, it's not really clear what Daniel Smith can do. It's not like there's a you know incredible legislative body governing what sports groups can and can't do. Um, but she has said she's going to work with. The province can work with school with uh, sporting groups to uh, make sure that there are biological female only divisions, um, so that uh, trans women cannot meet, and creating some kind of gender neutral or co-ed uh, divisions in sports for uh, for other uh, for for, for transgender people. And that's going to cover not just trans youth, which we talk about a lot in this, how much they're going to be affected, but that's going to affect uh, trans adults as well. One of the things that is. Um sort of most curious about this is that it is in direct opposition to what Premier Danielle Smith has suggested she would do. She said she did not want to politicize gender identity issues and was not looking to do something like the very thing that she's now done. Why is that? It's It's been fascinating that, um, and she would talk about wanting to depoliticize this. So that was her pat answer whenever she spoke about what Saskatchewan was doing and New Brunswick was doing. That made a lot of people expect that she was not going to go very anywhere near as far as what they were going to do, let alone farther than it. And that's not just people um, who are, you know, um, in the LGBT community or advocates, um, social conservatives 
were surprised pleasantly by what she did this this uh, past week. Um, they did not expect her to do this. She's herself a traditionally social libertarian. Um, doesn't want to wait into those situations. When she was a Wild Rose Party leader back in 2014, she was against uh, some uh, proposals by the then Tory government uh, to uh, require parental notification uh, if you're in a gay straight alliance in school. Um, so this is quite a turn for her and um, has, like I said, surprised and kind of jarred um, people on uh, both sides of this debate. She's not that far from a provincial election that saw her uh, win a, a very large majority. Um, but a lot of her, her base, of course, comes from that social conservative movement. Is this just something for them? There's certainly encouragement and excitement among that base. Uh, this is um, a pretty significant base within her party. Um, there's a group called Take Back Alberta, uh, which has really tried to bring people into the United Conservative Party, this big coalition of right-wing groups. Um, they were really activated at first by uh, by vaccine issues, um, by pandemic skepticism, especially the rules of pandemics. They also delved in the past year into uh, the gender uh, issues which have been so divisive uh, throughout North America. And it seemed like Daniel Smith is with them on uh, some of the vaccine and uh, pandemic issues, but didn't seem like she was with uh, with that group on this. Um, with these moves, um, they are very encouraged. They are very excited. Um, they, you know, they use rhetoric that she doesn't use um, about you know, this is the, the teachers have an agenda. People are poisoning minds, indoctrinating youth. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about the caustic terms about some of the medical treatments uh, that trans youth uh, seek or get. Um, now, she's not using that rhetoric. She's using much softer rhetoric and even talking about wanting to protect children, preserve their choices. Um, but she is doing much of what they wanted and in some cases, going beyond what they were asking for. You talk about the the caustic rhetoric. We've heard some of that same kind of rhetoric coming from the former Fox News host, um, Tucker Carlson, who were just a little more than a week after uh, his visit to Alberta, uh, during which he he said he was coming to liberate Canada. Does all of this fit together? Her invitation to have Tucker Carlson come and visit, um, her give to the social conservatives that make up so much of the base of the UCP, is it all part of the same um, dynamic? I mean, it's part of the same audience that wants to hear those things. I'm a lot of people at, I was at the Tucker Carlson event uh, a couple, uh, or last month in uh, Calgary, and um, people are really animated when he talks in uh, in very, you know, blunt terms that she doesn't use about uh, about transgender issues um, and his dismissive of them, not just uh, choices for youth, but in general. Um the people who wanted to hear that uh, would be very happy and perhaps surprised that uh, she's doing this. But you were talking earlier about uh, having an election, uh, you know, last last year. This is oh, she's doing this now, uh, more than three years out from the next election. So will this necessarily become a big election issue? You know, in three years, we'll be still talking about this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We're going to be talking about this a lot in Alberta because what Danielle Smith announced was just the frame. Uh, just her announcing the policy ideas. Uh, there's no legislation yet. There's no regulation. Um, that's all going to come this year. It's kind of set the stage for this to be a year where 
Alberta doesn't just talk about Ottawa and uh, carbon policy doesn't just talk about the coming drought, but because of these host of policies and um, the the consequences they might have and the inflammatory nature of them, uh, we're going to be talking about as these policies roll out a whole bunch this uh, year. So this controversy is going to be very much at the forefront of Alberta politics uh, for at least a year to come. Okay, as you say, these are policy proposals at this point. They're not yet law, but if they were to become law, um, one could foresee a legal challenge to that, that someone would say, this breaches my charter rights. Is that a likelihood? And if so, what happens then? It appears to be a likelihood. As you say, there would have to be some legislation or something to actually challenge. Uh, right now, there's not. But you look to what happened in Saskatchewan, where the uh, Saskatchewan party government by, of Scott Moe brought in a policy on pronouns. Uh, it was challenged in court. Uh, an injunction was sought. It was granted. The uh, judge talked about uh, the severe risk of harm to youth. And he imposed it. What Scott Moe did right after that last fall was he said, I'm going to bring back the legislature and invoke the notwithstanding clause and legislate Mm -hmm. on this polity to override uh, the charter rights that uh, the youth may have on this. Um, Which is this enormous hammer, enormous hammer. It's it's like the nuclear button of uh, Alberta or of legislating in in Canada to use... uh, I was just Go going to say, it's, it's sort of, it's a curious position for, um, particularly for a conservative government that might speak a lot about rights, but notwithstanding clause is suspending rights on a particular piece of legislation to invoke it, uh, to, to ensure that it, it moves ahead anyway. Danielle Smith is a very proud libertarian. She's been talking a lot about rights as it refers to uh, people who are facing restrictions during the pandemic um, or, you know, had their jobs restricted, um, uh, social activities or uh, church activities restricted. Uh, she's hailed the Canadian Civil Liberties Association for helping uh, overturn or push against the Emergencies Act uh, and Justin Trudeau's uh, declaration to squelch the convoy. Um, a week after she praises uh, the Civil Liberties Association, they are sharply criticizing her on the way she's uh, arguably squelching rights on uh, this one. So it's going to put her at odds with um, a group that she really reveres. She's, you know, she has a tattoo, Danielle Smith does, um, of a Sumerian word for liberty. Um, so for her to be uh, in the crosshairs now of the uh of the of the civil libertarian movement and potentially having to use the notwithstanding clause to see her uh to to force through her uh her policy ideas um would be quite a turn and um hard to reconcile there'll be a lot of questions for her uh, should she go that route she hasn't said she will yet I want to talk about the federal dynamic here. It is um, hardly going to be the first time that uh, Alberta and the federal liberals will be at odds with one another. And we are seeing that kind of strong reaction to these policy proposals from the federal liberals. For the second week in a row, uh, we've seen Justin Trudeau and uh, ministers um, really poke at Danielle Smith. Um, They did so when after she spoke at the uh, with Tucker Carlson on stage in Alberta uh, two weeks ago, and uh, they, the health minister was talking about uh, this, the trans policies as playing politics with children's lives. The next day, Trudeau uh, stood up on Friday talking about picking fights with trans kids, and we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, the federal government, it's not clear what kind of levers they have, say, with the um, with with the uh, with the Canada Health Act or other ways, but certainly they're using the bully pulpit to uh, say that they do not want to uh, they do not want this to happen. They you know 
they may have a health minister to health minister talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but they, they clearly want to be seen as uh, against this. And, uh, they'd love to draw Pierre Polyev into this. They're trying to draw Pierre Polyev into the, uh, Tucker Carlson, uh, saga, even though he and none of his MPs attended, uh, those events. But Polyev is trying to be very careful with this stuff. Uh, you know, he's seems so part of his rise has been in popularity has been some of the message discipline a lot of his MPs and his, he himself has had. Like he's talked about parental rights favorably. So he's generally given broad favor and support to what Saskatchewan and Brunswick do. But with the policies of Alberta going so much farther into sport and farther into schools and into medical uh, rights, uh, there, the Globe Mail reported on a lead memo he sent to MPs saying, don't talk about this. Be quiet about this as mm-hmm. much as you can. If you have to talk about parental rights, um, but they are not uh, placing their marker on this because they know how divisive this can be. And of course, Daniel Smith is three years out from an election. Uh, Pierre Polyev is uh, at most a year out from an election. Mm-hmm. And in a much better position uh, against the federal liberals. That's right. Something, uh, yeah, he has, uh, he, he, without uh, banging the drum of this policy or being drawn into this policy very much, he's uh, doing very well already. So uh, I think from their perspective, perhaps the, uh, the thought might be, uh, let's not ruin this. Uh, there's a, a history that the conservatives would rather forget about uh, being drawn into social conservative issues and uh, losing elections or facing setbacks that way. So uh, it's not surprising that Polyev is uh, trying to not get into that and uh, that Justin Trudeau and the Liberals would very much uh, want to draw into that and maybe regain uh, some kind of lead they have, or at least carve out a bit uh, more popularity than they have right now, which is, uh, the polls say, not much. Jason Markusoff, thanks so much. Hey, it's my pleasure, David. Great conversation. Jason Markusoff is a writer and producer with CBC Calgary. This is the Sunday Magazine. I'm David Common. On Tuesday... Turkey and Syria will mark one year since a devastating earthquake and its aftershocks killed some 56,000 people and damaged or destroyed hundreds of thousands of buildings. Sounds from the chaos in the immediate aftermath of the deadliest natural disaster in the region's modern history. Here we are one year on. Both Turkey and Syria are still recovering. Groups are still cleaning the rubble and thousands are displaced. In northern Syria, getting access to basic necessities like food and healthcare is a serious challenge. Dr. Bashir Tajaldin is an internist and the Turkey country lead for the Syrian American Medical Society. It's a nonprofit group that coordinates healthcare delivery in rebel-held parts of Syria. And he joins me from Gaziantep, which is near the epicenter of the initial quake in central Turkey. Dr. Tajaldin, good hello. Hello, David. Dr. Tajaldin, can you take me back a year ago to when that earthquake struck? What happened? It was fourth. 17 in the morning uh, uh, when uh, the weather was uh, snowy at that time in, in Gaziantep. I was planning to wake up at 6 uh, a.m. as usual, but unfortunately that uh, that day uh, I waked a little bit earlier, feeling that very strong shaking. Everything was shaking uh, uh, beside me and I uh, woke up and uh, realized that it's an earthquake. I experienced many small earthquakes uh, previously. It was very uh, uh, simple, but 
it was the first time I'm, I was feeling that uh, uh, strong uh, shaking and uh, everything around me is falling down. First of all, I run to uh, my kids' uh, rooms, make sure that they are okay and uh, trying to calm uh, uh, them down and take them uh, away from the house, uh, going into the, into the street with the neighbors and other uh, people in, living in the area. Then I went uh, to uh, uh, the car, moving around the city, and unfortunately I faced and see some collapsed buildings and uh, the people in the area trying to rescue and uh, uh, help as, uh, as soon as they can till the rescue teams uh, arrive. So that was uh, the uh, scene uh, uh, at that uh, early morning, cold, snowing, mist in everywhere. People uh, uh, are running out without knowing when, where they are uh, uh, going. I can imagine the dust from the rubble filling all of the streets, everything around you. And you've talked about the rescue teams and they end up bringing injured people to see you and to see your staff. What were the kinds of wounds that people had? Uh, thankfully, me, uh, uh, I was uh, uh, not injured me or none of uh, my uh, small family members. But unfortunately, when I was uh, communicating with other uh, colleagues, other uh, people, mainly in northwest Syria, where uh, uh, our main response as an organization is, was really disastrous. Uh, uh, our uh, uh, hospitals in northwest Syria and Idlib and Aleppo start to receive a huge number of, uh, of injuries. Uh, within a few hours, one of the hospital received more than uh, 300 uh, uh, injured people, a lot of uh, dead bodies. The main injuries was multiple uh, uh, trauma injuries, amputations, crush injuries. Uh, during the first few uh, days in, uh, in Northwest Syria alone, Idlib uh, and Aleppo, the hospitals received about 10,400 uh, injuries. And after the first week, uh, talking about the statistics, in uh, southern Turkey, more than 55,000 people lost their lives, more than 100,000 uh, uh, injured people. Uh, and in, in North uh, West Syria, fortunately, uh, more than 10,000 uh, uh, injuries. The documented uh, deaths were about uh, uh, more than uh, uh, 5,000. But uh, because the, the lack of uh, the heavy equipment, a lot of uh, uh, bodies uh, left uh, uh, under the, uh, the rebels, uh, unfortunately, as in, in northwest Syria alone, more than 120 uh, counties have been affected by the earthquake. Some communities are crowded with the population after long uh, uh, years of, uh, of displacement. A lot, uh, millions of uh, people are living in a small area in northwest Syria. Uh, so this uh, was uh, the situation on both uh, sides of the of the borders. Bashir, I'm thinking about your staff in Syria, your medical staff there, and I'm just thinking about how much can one human absorb? How much can they take? This was a trauma on a tragedy. It was an earthquake in the midst of a a civil war that had been raging for over a decade. How did they react? How can they take? that much uh, uh, over a decade uh, those uh, the uh, health staff in, uh, in north syria have a very good and strong experience in dealing with the mass casualty and uh, uh, mass trauma but for the earthquake itself 
it has a unique uh, impact. It's a natural disaster. Many of the uh, staffs and uh, especially the health staff, they are working in Syria while their families are living on the other side of the border in uh, Turkey. So this was uh, uh, really the most uh, touching uh, piece at that time that we have health staff, doctors, nurses, assistants who are uh, treating and managing the trauma cases. They are in the ER uh, uh, department in the surgical operations, doing stabilization and surg- surgical procedures. While they do, uh, they know nothing about their families who are living in Turkey. One of the uh, doctors, while he was uh, responding to the injuries and the trauma cases in Syria, he lost communication with uh, his family, his uh, wife, his two daughters, and uh, uh, his new uh, newborn uh, son. To discover after uh, two days that his uh, two daughters survived while he lost his uh, wife and his uh, newborn uh, uh, child. So that is the uh, the most. Uh, heavy and stressful uh, situation uh, uh, the medical staff faced at that uh, uh, at that period and yet he's still being asked to continue working yes Bashir here we are now one year later um, we're speaking to you in Turkey but of course the efforts to try to recover from this continue on both sides of the border in Turkey and in Syria what are things like now uh, regardless the uh, economic impact, uh, the situation in uh, Turkey uh, is going uh, well. Still, uh, a lot of efforts uh, needed, and the recovery phase will uh, will take uh, uh, years. Uh, but fortunately, in Turkey, there is uh, a strong willingness from the government to uh, do the recovery and compensate the uh, injured uh, or affected uh, population. Uh, in contrast to uh, and uh, the opposite situation in northwest Syria, unfortunately, in northwest Syria, still uh, after the uh, earthquake, uh, we are uh, uh, facing more and more gaps in the uh, in the response, rather uh, either the humanitarian response, emergency response, or even the uh, recovery uh, efforts. Now, after uh, one year, we have increased. Uh, number of uh, the people in need, increasing in the poverty uh, rate in Northwest Syria, increasing uh, in the severity of the needs, also increasing in the percentage of the population are in need for the humanitarian assistance. On the other side, we are facing a huge uh, decrease in the uh, resources because of many uh, issues, donor fatigue, lack of funding, uh, global economic uh, crisis, a new crisis arose uh, uh, during the last year. So still we need a lot of efforts. We need uh, more resources, but unfortunately there are uh, less resources. Bashir, you're, you're painting a picture for us about the desperate state of hospitals, particularly in Syria. And you're telling us about the heroic efforts of your staff on both sides of the border. And I can tell that you want to highlight their efforts but i do want to ask about you are you a different person today than you were a year ago because of everything that's happened from the earthquake onwards for sure i'm uh, uh, a different person like uh, any other uh, person who uh, who faced this uh, crisis but maybe uh, our uh, our work as a humanitarian worker including uh, this uh, 
we are not responsible about ourselves alone, but we are accountable towards the people who we are serving and helping, try to support them and need them in, uh, and fill their needs. You must think about your kids, though, at the same time. Your kids who were who were scared on the in the, those two terrifying moments of the earthquake, you ran right to them, and they would have seen a lot of what you've since seen, all of the destruction and presume I presume people screaming for help out on the streets. Yes, exactly. Who are they today? Do they they do they remember this? Uh, every uh, every day, yes. Although uh, in. Uh, in Turkey, uh, we have uh, access to uh, more advanced uh, services, including mental health and psychosocial support. We are trying to do our best uh, in Syria, but uh, the available resources are different on the both uh, sides of the uh, borders, I, as I told you. Yeah, the Syrian, your Syrian colleagues must feel these same pains, but they don't have the resources, they don't have the mental health resources to to deal with everything they've had to absorb, everything they've seen. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm thinking about more than uh, 2.8 million uh, children living in northwest uh, Syria. During the last decade, the only thing they, they face is the chemical weapons, the barrel bombs, the bombardment from airstrike, from different uh, kind of uh, weapons with lack of access to the uh, schools or education. They are living uh, in a very harsh uh, situation. I imagine uh, during any uh, crisis or any uh, new disaster, I look uh, to my uh, kids, but also I have to think about the, uh, the children and uh, uh, the kids, other people living in northwest Syria under much uh, harder situation that uh, uh, I'm living. Very limited uh, resources and they are uh, trying to, uh, to survive. We have a full uh, generation during the last uh, 13 years of uh, children who didn't see anything rather than uh, uh, the war. What, what is so that those, like? What is that like for you, knowing that there are children who know no other reality than destruction by natural disaster or war? The main risk is that uh, there is a lost uh, generation. I imagine that uh, there are a full generation of people, uh, children, uh, and now they are teenagers. They didn't know uh, the definition of the house. They consider the tent uh, as their house. They are uh, attending to, to school in a tent. They don't know what's the shape of the, uh, of the road. So we need uh, the global uh, uh, community and the global humanitarian community and political will need to look into uh, uh, those generations and uh, uh, save them. You clearly care for your staff and you know the big picture and all the awful things about it, but this is quite something for you at the age of 43. You're a dad, you're a husband, and dealing with all of this, it's, uh, it's remarkable in a terrible way. It's actually the uh, the heroes are the health staff in the in the field. Uh, they are not uh, dealing with patients only and uh, uh, because of the earthquake, but they are dealing with the, with the people in very different uh, and uh, stressful and hard uh, situation, including many uh, many many risks. Yes, I can imagine that, oh. and many of them have died too. Yes, unfortunately. 
Okay, Bashir, we will let you go home. You see your children, you have your dinner. I will leave you to it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Before we wrap up this week's edition of the Sunday Magazine, I want to thank our producers, Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, Pete Mitten, and Aronde Williams. We had additional help from audio technicians Emily Chiarvesio, Marco Luciano, as well as studio director Susan McReynolds. Our senior producer is Howard Goldenthal. Our executive producer, Brian Colton. You can visit cbc.ca slash Sunday to stream and share all of today's stories and get our podcasts. And send us your thoughts, sunday at cbc.ca. I'm David Common. Thanks so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.